Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Wow, thank you, Bella and I. I was hoping for the, like, the best introduction I've ever had then, and it just at the last moment slipped away. Um, so it is great to be with you. Um, if you are new to Christchurch, um, you will find us in the middle, actually kind of over halfway through a series on the book of Proverbs, which you can find in the Old Testament, kind of almost halfway through your Bible, and it is a book that is just packed full of wisdom. So this whole um, term we've been thinking about wisdom, about how to live in a wise way. And as Liam laid out his his introduction to the series, the goal of Proverbs is that we learn how to pursue together a way of living that leads to shalom. Shalom is just like this great Hebrew word. It sounds nice to say, shalom. And often it's translated as peace, but actually it's a much deeper concept than that. Shalom carries in it this idea of wholeness, of wellness, of harmony, of everyone relating rightly to one another, to God, and actually to the whole of creation. So this is what the goal of Proverbs is. The goal is a communal goal. It is a relational goal, a social goal. The Proverbs isn't just concerned with helping kind of you as an, invid- and an individual work out how to do life well. It's not kind of 101 ways to hack your life, to beat the competition. Actually, Proverbs is about helping us work together, to live together in a way that all of us flourish and thrive. So not me at the expense of you or us at the expense of them, but all of us together. And with that in mind, today we're going to look at what uh, Proverbs has to say about the area of poverty and our response to poverty and to the poor. And to do that, we're going to focus on just one main proverb, Proverbs 29, verse 7. And this is what it says. It says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. I want us to say that together. So just repeat after me. The righteous... Whoa, 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 whoa. Repeat after me. Come on, guys. Let's get this right. The righteous righteous care care about justice for the poor. But the wicked have no such concern. We're going to do that today. If the only thing you remember from today, I want you to remember this proverb. So we're going to do that again. So again, repeat after me. The righteous care about justice for the poor. But the wicked have no such concern. Okay, take this down now. We're going to do the whole thing, and now we can do it together. Are you ready? The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Let's just meditate upon that for about half an hour, and then the band will come up. That would be easier than the prep I've done this week, I can tell you. Let me just pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are here with us. I pray that you would help us to receive what you have to speak to us today. And I pray that you would build our faith that we can be a community that does justice for the poor. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. The righteous care about justice for the poor. Who exactly are the righteous? Well, in the book of Proverbs, the righteous is just another way of referring to the wise. It is a way to categorize those people who are pursuing shalom, who are pursuing a society under the rule of God where everyone is related rightly to one another. So, for example, in Proverbs 9.9, we read, Instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. This isn't two categories of people that the uh, proverb writer is talking about. It's just it's one category. 
in Proverbs, to be righteous is to be wise, to be wise is to be righteous. I mean, if you wanted to get technical about it, you could say that wisdom is about knowing how to pursue and maintain right relationships. And righteousness is about being in right relationships. But as far as Proverbs is concerned, you just can't be one without the other. You can't be wise without being righteous. You can't be righteous without being wise. Because having wisdom and being wise isn't just kind of intellectually knowing how to do something. It is living that thing out. And so if you gain wisdom, then you will gain righteousness. In the same way, foolishness and wickedness are kind of the same thing, the opposites of wisdom and righteousness. And so in one sense, if you are foolish, if you don't know how to maintain and pursue right relationships, then you will kind of end up wicked in that you won't be in right relationships. And it's important for us to think that righteousness and wickedness aren't kind of moral terms, abstract moral terms in that sense. They're to do with our relationships. And so wickedness is the result of living foolishly. The wicked are not in right relationship, but the righteous are. And one of the things that comes up again and again as you read through Proverbs is kind of the personal cost that is involved in living righteously. The personal cost that is involved in pursuing and maintaining good relationships or restoring relationships that have broken down. Which I think we get on an, kind of intuitively on a personal level. We understand that for our closest relationships, there has to be this give and take, doesn't there? There has to be one side giving and taking and the other side giving and taking. If it's just one-sided, we would say that that is not a healthy relationship. Any friendship where it's just given one side and just take on the other, that isn't a friendship that is going to last. Any kind of romantic relationship where this happens will break down at some point. And so Proverbs teaches that this same principle of give and take applies to all of our relationships in society our civic relationships, our business relationships, our economic relationships. Because shalom, because this kind of pursuit of living in right relationship with one another is not something that just happens. It is something that must be intentionally and rigorously pursued. And that is just what the righteous do. They pursue shalom, they pursue right relationships even when it costs them something personally. Even when it costs them something personally in the long run. Even if they can see the benefit in the future, if it costs them something, they are willing to do it. Um, Bruce Waltke is um, an Old Testament theologian. And he he goes through all of the Proverbs that kind of pick out righteousness and wickedness. And he looks at all of them. And what is it that distinguishes the righteous from the wicked? Um, And he says you can summarize all of those proverbs with this one saying. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked, on the other hand, are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. The righteous are willing to give up some of what they have, their wealth, opportunity, time, privilege, for the good of others in their community, for the good of the health of their external relationships. Whilst the wicked, they just don't care about that. They're just about getting on. They're just about them. It's just about what can I use these other people do to benefit myself. And one of the ways in Proverbs that we are told the righteous disadvantages themselves for the sake of others is by caring about justice for the poor. Now, I find it very interesting that this proverb frames poverty as a justice issue. This proverb does not say that the righteous are generous to the poor, but that they care about justice for the poor. Which, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the righteous 
aren't generous to the poor and that we should not be generous to the poor. Please don't leave hearing that. As David talked about last week, we want to be a community that is characterized by a radical generosity. And generosity that definitely includes being extravagantly generous to the poor. As David said, uh, generous with our time, with our resources, with our family, with our prayers. But our response to the poor cannot and should not stop with just generosity or charity. It should also include seeking justice. And the fact that Proverbs says that the righteous care about justice for the poor, I think teaches us something very important about how the Bible understands the causes of poverty. Because to talk about justice for the poor is to understand that the reasons for poverty are not just confined to an individual person's choices or character. That there can be, and almost always are, I would say, external factors at play. So on the one hand, yes, as you read through the book of Proverbs, you find plenty of advice, plenty of wisdom on how a person can keep themselves from becoming poor. Things like work hard, don't be lazy, heed correction and discipline, don't become someone who loves too much wine or olive oil, don't sleep too much, don't chase get-rich-quick schemes, don't be stingy, make good plans, choose your business partners wisely, stuff like that, which is all obviously great advice. It is advice that any parent wants to kind of help their child learn. Any teacher wants to help their student learn. But Proverbs doesn't just stop there. It doesn't stop with just an encouragement for people to work themselves out of poverty. It is way more balanced than that. It also recognizes that there are these other forces at play. Things outside of a person's control that can have a dramatic effect upon them and upon their ability to make a living, to provide for their family, to contribute to their community. Now, I don't know if you saw the video that was doing the rounds, I think last year, um, showing kind of a group of American university students having a race as kind of a metaphor for life. So you have dozens of students lined up in a park, um, and their, their student worker, I think it is, holds up a $100 bill. He says, we're going to have a race, and the first one to me gets this $100. So like, they're all pretty excited. He said, but before we start, I'm going to shout out a couple of statements. And if, this, if you agree with this, if this is, applies to you, then take two steps forward. And so he says this. He says, take two steps forward if your parents are still married. Some people do. Take two steps forward if you grew up with a father figure in the home. If you had access to a private education, access to a free tutor. If you never had to help your mum or dad pay the bills. If you never wondered where your next meal was coming from. So he says these statements, and by the time he's finished, like the students are spread out across the field. So you have a whole bunch who are still on the starting line, and some, like, over halfway, almost at the finishing line. And then he makes his point. He says, every statement I have just made has absolutely nothing to do with choices that you have made. Nothing to do with decisions that you have personally made. All of these things are things outside of your control. Choices that other people have made on your behalf. And that is true for all of us, isn't it? There are so many things that we did not choose, had no control over, that have helped us get where we are today. Things just like the family we were born into, the place where we grew up, our education, the experiences that we were exposed to, the networks that we have been welcomed into. Just think about our natural God-given gifts and ability, our intellect, our health, even our looks. We even think about the work ethic that we have picked up from those around us, or the assumptions that we have absorbed about whether hard work actually leads to opportunities and open doors. 
And I think it is so important for us to recognize that, not just so we can kind of live with the appropriate level of humility and gratitude towards God for the amazing blessings that so many of us have received, but so that we can think about poverty in a balanced way that the Bible does. Tim Keller is um, a New York pastor that we quote a lot at Christchurch, author of a book called Generous Justice, which is probably one of the most influential books in my whole area of thinking in this way. Um, and he is used to leading a church in Manhattan. Like they say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. So these are people like, at the top of their game. And he says to them, we take far more credit for our prosperity than we should. When we flatter ourselves that our assets are the result of just our work, rather than all these external factors at play, it can lead us to believe that the lack of such assets must be the result of laziness, of some kind of character defect. But the Bible is so much more balanced than that in its understanding of the causes of poverty. So yes, on the one hand, it's pretty clear, the Bible is clear that poor choices can lead to poverty, that laziness can lead to poverty. But on the other hand, it is very clear that poverty is also the result of many different things outside of a person's control. I mean, things like illness and disability can obviously dramatically affect a person's ability to work, to get a good education. And therefore, pretty much in every nation on earth, sadly I would say including our own, if you are disabled or have serious medical conditions, or actually even if you are in the family where someone has a disability or serious medical conditions, then chances are if you are not already in a family of wealth, you will end up much poorer than people who do not have a disability. And the Bible obviously talks about natural disasters being a reason for poverty. Things like famines and floods and earthquakes and fires that can sweep away the wealth of a family or even a community or even a nation in an instant. I mean, just think of Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the world that has suffered earthquake after earthquake, destroying its infrastructure over and over again. Think about the Yemen at the moment, suffering this ongoing famine. Obviously, this is stuff outside of their control. So those kind of external things that cause poverty. But actually, the Bible speaks about another external cause. It's actually the cause that it emphasizes most throughout the pages of Scripture. And that is the actions of other people upon the poor, which leave them or keep them poor. Tim Keller again. He says, as you read through the Bible, wherever great disparities arose between the wealthy and the poor in Israel... The prophets assume that to some degree it was the result of selfish individualism rather than the concern for the common good. Or to put it another way, the main cause of poverty in the scriptures, the main emphasis of that cause is wickedness as we defined it earlier. That poverty is caused by some people disadvantaging, oppressing, exploiting other people for their own material benefit. So, for example, you have Proverbs, like Proverbs 13, 23. An unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. And the idea here is a piece of land that is so fertile, so like going to help things grow so much, that you don't even have to work at it. I mean, this is a good piece of land to have. And so the poor are going to make their living just by being on this piece of land, but then the wicked come in and they steal it away from them, and the poor are left with nothing. Gary Haugen is the um, founder and CEO of International Justice Mission, an organization that we work with here, and he coined the term the locus effect to explain this type of violent injustice. I think it's such a powerful image. 
So imagine a family looking out over their harvest. The crops have grown. And then seeing in the distance like a dark cloud coming towards them. And then hearing the buzzing all around them. And then having to watch helpless as a swarm of locusts just comes in and strips their wealth before their eyes. All over the world right now, the poor are as powerless to stop the powerful from stealing their land, their resources, their belongings, even their sons and their daughters, as a farm is against this onslaught of locusts devouring her crops. But then as well as injustice on an individual scale because of kind of localized acts of violence, Proverbs is also clear that injustice can happen on a national or a systemic scale. Proverbs 28.3 says, A ruler who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain that leaves no crops. So rain brings life. It helps things to grow and flourish. But driving rain actually does the opposite. Driving rain strips crops and creates poverty. And the teaching of this proverb is that rulers and governments and legal systems are like rain. Their very function is to help things to grow. They're supposed to protect the poor from being exploited by the powerful. And so, for example, the Bible says about rulers, about governments, um, amongst other things, they're supposed to protect the poor from unjustly low wages, from loans with excessive interest, from legal systems where the wealthy get better outcomes than the poor, and from being mistreated because of their immigration status. That is what governments are supposed to do. But when that doesn't happen... When governments either make bad laws and policies or where they fail to uphold good laws and good policies, one section of society is made rich at the expense of another section of society who are kept poor. Or actually, to translate it probably best into the world's global economy, one small part of the world has been made and is kept rich at the expense of another greater part of the world that was made and is kept poor. This is what Gustavo Gutierrez, who was a Peruvian theologian and priest, he spent his whole life working amongst the poor on a continent where almost 50% of people lived in desperate poverty. He says, poverty is not fate, it is a condition. It is not a misfortune, it is an injustice. It is the result of social structures and mental and cultural categories. It is linked to the way in which society, societies, global societies have been built in its various manifestations. And when that is the case, then what the poor need is not just private charity, but systemic change. They need a change to social structures, economic structures, political structures, legal structures that are creating or allowing for the conditions which keep them poor. If that is the case, and I think we can all agree that it is across the world, then what the poor need is justice. I think that's a very easy thing to say, isn't it? But it is a much harder thing to actually do. We all know systemic change is not something that happens overnight. Changing laws, changing policies, changing business practices, changing attitudes and cultures is incredibly complex. Incredibly time-consuming, incredibly difficult work. Not to mention the fact that attempting to do justice for the poor, you are almost by definition going to come up against the wicked, who are very intent on keeping things as they are, because they're benefiting from this system. 
And so they will fight tooth and nail to stop any kind of change happening. Which is why I think so often when the church starts talking about justice for the poor, rather than just carrying on with its work with the poor, opposition can start. Helder Camaro was a Brazilian archbishop who, as well as working tirelessly with the poor within his community, courageously and consistently between the 60s and the 80s, spoke out against the military dictatorship that actually had led to poverty in his country. And he quite famously said this, he says, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. So it's like, just stick to doing what you do, that's feeding the poor, leave the other stuff to us. So everyone's okay with the church kind of running food banks and youth clubs and kitchens, soup kitchens. But when the church rises up to start talking about systemic injustice, starts petitioning for change to laws, to policies, starts pointing out funding gaps, racial inequalities in the education and judicial systems, well, we know it's not always well received, is it? There's a pushback. But that doesn't mean that we should not do it. It just means that we have to think very carefully about how to do it, which is actually what this proverb says. When it says the righteous care about justice for the poor, the word care there translates this Hebrew term, which means to search out a matter, to do exhaustive research about a matter. Caring, for the just, caring about justice for the poor is not kind of an immediate thing, it's not just an emotional response. It's about taking time to work out what is it that is really going on here? Why are the poor poor? Then working out just what is it that can be done, what needs to change? Then working out how actually do we push this change through? How do we make change happen? In his book, Woke Church, Dr. Eric Mason, who is an American pastor in Texas, he refers to the passage in Matthew 23 when Jesus is talking about the false religions of the religious elite. Jesus says there, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And Dr. Mason points out that Jesus is using a play on words here, that the phrase that the NRV translates as the more important matters of the law is literally the weightier matters of the law. Jesus is contrasting the naturally light, almost weightlessness of a tenth of your spice rack with the weight, the expanse of the deeper matters of the law like justice. Now, there's no suggestion in the scriptures that the scribes and the Pharisees were opposed in principle to justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The problem was that they didn't devote the same care and attention to working out the practical implications of how to do justice as they did to make sure that they were tithing their spices right. I mean, can you imagine how careful you need to be to take a tenth of your spices? How much time, how much focus, how much concentration it would take to work through your whole spice for everything in your kitchen and take a tenth of it and give that each week. And Jesus, just like our proverb from today, is saying that when it comes to working out how to do justice for the poor, a far weightier, a far more reaching, more impactful, more community-defining, more life-changing and life-giving aspect of the law, that we must be just as careful just as focused, just as diligent, take just as much time. I think an amazing example of people who are doing this are our friends at Together Street. 
So as Di mentioned, Together Street are going to be at the Women's Night in a couple of weeks' time. Really recommend you ladies get along to that, if nothing else, just to hear what they are about. So Together Street was started uh, last year by our very own Abby Aston Payne from this service with her sister-in-law, Claire. And it was started as a way of helping people to investigate how to bring justice to the poor who are involved in the fashion industry. I don't think they would say it quite like that, but that's how I'm saying That's what I'm seeing that they are doing. They're bringing justice to the poor. Now, I don't know if you know this. If you sign up to Together Street's monthly emails, which again, you recommend that you would do, you would have found out this last month that according to the Global Slavery Index, fashion ranks second after tech in the top five global industries implicated in fueling modern slavery. There are more people in slavery today than at any other point in history, and many of them are working within the fashion industry. So you have from state-sponsored enforced labor in the cotton fields of Uzbekistan. Um, I don't know if you saw the Stacey Dooley Investigates, which is talking about the environmental impacts of the fashion industry. Talks about in Uzbekistan, like this whole lake that has disappeared in order to funnel it into cotton fields. What she didn't go into is the 1.3 million children that are forced to work in those cotton fields. And then you have young women trapped in the cotton mills of India. Like thousands, uh, every, almost every month, told, this is a better life for you, come here, you'll have a better life. And they end up working like ridiculous hours in ridiculous um, situations. And then you have the garment factories in Bangladesh. I mean, it's the Rana Plaza disaster in 2013 that kicked off Together Street looking into this. I don't know if you know about that, over a thousand people died as this whole factory collapsed. They just put more and more people, more and more machines making clothes that appear on our high streets. Which means that of all the products that come into the UK, the Global Slavery Index says that clothing is most at risk of being produced in conditions of slavery. It's as if a whole industry exists to advantage the West and our desire for fast fashion by disadvantaging the people who make it. The thing I love about Together Street is that they understand that this is a hugely complex problem. A problem that involves governments and multinational corporations and consumer cultures all over the world. It is not something that can change overnight. But they don't let the scale and the complexity of the problem stop them doing something. They're all about helping people take the next step, whether that is to get educated, to get inspired by stuff that's already happening, to start changing our shopping habits bit by bit. I bought this T-shirt because of Together Street. I mean, this, I know, is slave-free, which is quite incredible, but this is the only item of clothing that I'm wearing that I can say for sure. But that's one thing. We can all do that one thing. We can use the power that we have as consumers to get involved in telling big brands, asking them the question, who made my clothes? When we went to a shop for our girls um, at the beginning of term, went into a big chain, bought their stuff, took a picture of it, and I... Um, uh, I tweeted, that's the word, tweeted this company, said, um, we just bought our kids, uh, clothes for our kids. We just want to make sure that other kids didn't make them. Like, who made this? And they had no answer. They couldn't tell me. And that's because in the fashion industry, everything is outsourced and outsourced and outsourced. And so big brands don't actually know, uh, they are not transparent about where slavery comes in their supply chain. But there is a movement now of asking brands, of taking pictures of your clothes and tweeting them, saying, who made my clothes? And the more pressure we as consumers put upon the fashion industry, the more they have to be actually transparent. Um, as a, I, I read a line that um, slavery is business. We just need to put slavery out of business. 
And we can do that by changing the way that we shop, changing where we shop. There are all things that we can do. And in that way, I think Together Street kind of embody the wisdom of Proverbs 3.27, which says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. When it is in your power to act. Now, obviously, trying to change something like the fashion industry, there's loads of things outside of our power. I mean, it's hugely complex. There are loads of ways that we cannot help the exploited. There are loads of ways that actually we can't help those exploited in our own country, the poor in our own country that need justice. But there are some. We do have some power. We can use, like I said, our purchasing power. We can use our vote. It's so important to be involved politically. Now, we as a church don't take a political position. I think that's definitely right. We're not left, we're not right. But we are involved in politics because politics changes things. And so we should be, as people interested in kind of care for the poor, involved in politics, involved in getting laws changed. We can use our platforms, our influence where we have them. In the corporations that we work for, the businesses that we own, we should be saying, how do we make sure that we are not exploiting the poor here? We can use our time. We can use our money. We can petition. We can educate. We can inspire. We can speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. There are literally hundreds of things that we can do. We just need to work out, what are they? We need to find them. We need to find people like Abby and Claire who can kind of champion this. And they're doing that with fashion. That's amazing. But there are so many other areas, again, global stuff, local stuff, that we can actually do something about. Why don't we decide together to become a community who are willing to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others by seeking justice for the poor? Why don't we make that decision? Because it is a cost, isn't it? It will cost us something. It will cost us maybe comfort, ease, cost us money, time. But we see in the scriptures that this is what God is calling us to do. So why don't we decide to do just that? Maybe I have the band back. You know what the best part of all of this is? That as we work to bring justice for the poor, we can be confident of success. Isn't that incredible? And you want to know why that is? Because the God of the Bible, the God reveals in the scriptures, is a God who identifies himself with the poor and the powerless. A God has revealed himself to be on the side of the poor. And all through the Proverbs, the reason the wicked are told are not to exploit the poor or oppress the poor is because God himself is their defender and he will take up their case against him. God himself is working for justice for the poor. And so when we work for justice for the poor, we are working with him. I mean, there's a reason that someone like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. can confidently declare that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. There's a reason that the civil rights movements that had to endure decades of oppression and opposition and violence all while remaining confident that the thing that they were fighting for, equality not only under the law but in society, would happen one day. And that was because the beating heart of the civil rights movement was the belief that God was on their side fighting with them and for them and sustaining them as they fight for justice. And the reason that they know that is not just because we read in the Old Testament stories like the Exodus, where God breaks the power of Pharaoh and leads a whole people out of slavery. 
It's not just because we read in the pages of the Psalms and Proverbs and the Prophets about how God is a defender of the poor. It's because we see it in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus, we see a God who is willing to disadvantage himself in every way imaginable in order to advantage us in every way possible. Philippians says Jesus did not consider equality with God. He did not consider his privilege, his status, his wealth, his power, something to be held onto, something to be grasped, something to be used just for his own advantage. Instead, he gave it all up. He made himself nothing by taking on the form of a man. And then he humbled himself even further by dying on the cross, all so that he could win justice for us, a complete justice, a justice for the poor that includes spiritual rightness with God, but also includes rightness with one another. I mean, that is where we are heading. That is the end of this story, justice, complete justice for the poor, a rewriting of everything that is wrong in history. And so the good news of the gospel is that we will one day reach shalom. We will one day reach full righteousness. And a part of the good news that we get to declare to this city is that there is justice for the poor coming. That the justice for the oppressed and for the exploited and for the marginalized, that is coming. That justice for the stolen and for the forgotten and for the abused, that is coming. That justice for the hungry and the tired and the broken is coming. The good news of Jesus Christ is that because the just one has come, we can be confident that justice will come. It's often a saying that people say, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? We cannot fail in this. Justice is a certainty. So that is my challenge to you this morning. My challenge to me this morning. What should we be doing? What can we be doing? That thing on your heart, that thing that angers you and annoys you, that injustice that you feel... What can you do about that? Knowing that you can't fail. Knowing it may take hundreds of years. Hundreds of them, and that's not a nice thought. It may take hundreds of years. The arc of the moral universe is long. But we are going to get there. And we know we are going to get there because of Jesus. And so part of what we're going to do now is we're going to worship and think about this. We're going to worship this amazing God that has brought justice for us. Justice with God. Our relationship with God has been restored and is bringing justice to one another. I just invite you to stand. And let's sing together.